Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts, and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values, and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hi and welcome to this week's show. I hope things are well wherever you are and wherever you're listening to this. Um, we've had a gorgeous week of sunshine here in the UK um, and it's looking as if that's going to continue for uh, the next week or so. So um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to you hearing this interview that I've got uh, recorded for today's show. Uh, it's with Kirby Rossblock, who is an expert in family offices. And we're going to be talking about the sorts of discussions and considerations that need to be thought of when uh, there's a potential for the establishment of a family office. Um, In the scenario we discuss is a family who has decided to sell their family business, the operating company, and are looking at options of what to then do with that wealth um, of which a family office is one. So that's coming up in a little bit. Before I get onto that though, I just again want to say a massive thank you to those who are supporting the show. Um, it's something that I've been doing for um, three and a half years, nearly four years now. Uh, I love it. I really enjoy bringing you interesting and informative content uh, each week. Um, and I've was approached a few times by people asking if there's a way to support what it is that I'm doing. So I have set up a page on the podcast website. So it's fanbizpodcast.com forward slash support. And there's various ways there that you can support what I'm doing if you are enjoying the content. Also want to mention something that I've covered on a previous show, which is the IFB's online conference which this year is being held on the 10th of June. It is entitled Destination Future and although last year's in-person event was postponed for obvious reasons um, the online version is coming this year and it's a forum for family business owners, managers and experts from the UK and abroad to reflect on their experiences and prepare for the road ahead with curiosity and imagination. I'm going along, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's gonna be a great event. If you want to find out more about the conference, you can do so by visiting the IFB's website, which is ifb.org.uk forward slash conference. And uh, I hope to see as many of you there as possible. So let's get on with this week's show. Enjoy the conversation. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. The topic we are going to be discussing today is from family business to family office. And I am delighted and we're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Kirby Rossblock um, on this week's show. 
and we're going to be digging into some of the considerations that you may need to take into account if this uh, scenario applies to you. Um, by way of introduction, I'll get Kirby to introduce um, herself fully um, in a minute, but uh, she is recognised as a consultant, researcher, innovator, advisor, author, facilitator and speaker in both the family business and family office realms. And she is also the founder and principal of Tamarind Partners, which is a family office consulting firm and Tamarind Learning, which is an education technology firm. So firstly, Kirby, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Russell. It's delightful to be here and to be speaking with you today. Um, and so I gave you a, a, a brief intro there, but perhaps um, for those in the audience who may not have uh, come across your work before, could you give us a, a more uh, detailed overview of your uh, story, your career today, and how you came to be doing what you're doing today? Well, if you had asked me in kindergarten if I would end up a family office consultant, author, researcher, and speaker, that would not have been my choice. It probably would have been ballerina, <laughs> um, maybe even a firefighter. But honestly, a lot of the work that I do today is a function of growing up in a complex enterprising family. I'm the youngest and the fourth generation of a timber family that dates back to the late 1800s. Um, I sat on the sidelines, right, as most children do, observing, seeing, watching, listening, um, and wondering, where will I end up? I never thought I would end up on the other side, actually advising and working with families and really feeling like a researcher and a student of family business and family enterprise, knowing that so much is at stake. And I guess that's really what drew me to this work. Um, is just knowing the consequences because I live them. I live them. I continue to live them. Um, and knowing how important family enterprise is to our world, really. And as I mentioned, we're looking at uh, the scenario today of moving from a family business to, to a family office. Now, there, there's many different ways that this can happen, but perhaps the most obvious is that there's a liquidity event, a full or partial sale of... The, the operating business. So for the sake of, of our conversation today, we are assuming that there has been this liquidity event uh, in this uh, particular family's life. And then we're going to explore some of the things that um, might need to be thought of and, and discussed as a family in, in establishing or deciding to establish a family office. Now, this is a topic that I've touched on um, in a previous episode, but many months uh, have passed since then. So could you give us a introduction to what a family office is, what format they take for those in the audience, again, who may not be overly familiar with the, the term and, and what they are? Well, I like to say sometimes that um, there are 50 shades of family office. So um, you've also probably heard people say, if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office. Mm -hmm. It's um, that is a truth. And like family business, the definition is sort of in the eye of the beholder. So some individuals really think of a family office as um, a centralizing point to um command and organize perhaps the investment function, the financial function, the compliance, tax, administration function, um, estate planning, wealth transfer, uh, books and records, security, 
uh, concierge services. Um, so there's a number of things, right, that can kind of fit into this massive umbrella of family office. But I think the one thing I always come back to is that you are actually creating a business. And oftentimes family business owners think that they're creating something different. But in essence, they're really creating the business of their wealth mm-hmm. as opposed to the source of wealth that created their wealth. You know, their business, family business has a very clear identity typically um, associated with the segment of, of um, you know, business that they're in. Mm-hmm. And once you get to liquidity, you have to sort of redefine what, what does this really mean? What are we trying to accomplish and where are we headed with this? Yeah. And I think there's a, a really important point that you made in, in there is that the family office is a, another type of business. It's just that rather than it being uh, focused on, say, the products or service that the family had offered through the operating company, it's dealing with the wealth and all the associated um, opportunities and challenges that that can bring with it. Um, again, with that in mind and our scenario in, in mind, and I think we're going to kind of blow our scenario out the water a little bit here, but let's assume that somebody has, uh, or a family has had this liquidity event Where's the starting point in deciding from there whether to to look at a family office as an option, whether to just disperse the wealth and say, good luck, everyone, off you go? Um, what sort of discussions in your experience of families or should families be having at um, that point? Well, Russell, let's step back because there's many canaries in the proverbial coal mine of family business. And so if if you're that family business that has seen many canaries fall in that coal mine due to things like family conflict and strife, um, real tensions around business ownership, management, direction, or if there's an apathy, okay? So there oftentimes um, family business can be extraordinarily um, resoundingly energizing and it can be also very... Um, catabolic. It can actually drain sort of the energy out of families. And so oftentimes I'm the believer of looking back to look forward. Um, Not that that's a predictor that you're going to have a toxic family office, but you'll oftentimes start to understand really quickly, does the family have affinity? Jay Hughes talks about this. A lot of people write about this. Um, I'm a big believer that um, family should stay together because they want to stay together and family should craft a plan um, that examines their roots. Because if you have a a family that constantly resolves issues in a very, you know, conflicting kind of way, it it may trigger you to say, we need to revise governance thinking about this type of structure, or it might actually be a good indicator that this could create even more conflict um, in your family that may not get as easily resolved. There's a lot of cases of litigation out there, beneficiaries suing trustees, families um, not being happy with the management, and particularly when family business owners now transition into a kind of founder role of a family office, um, it can sort of perpetuate some of the brokenness in the past sometimes where founders don't necessarily enfranchise all the stakeholders to be on board with this new business. So I'm a big believer to look back as you're looking forward. And, you know, let's, let's 
pretend as if that's uh, ivory snow perfect history and this family gets along well, then, then the real question for me is, is it financially feasible? Is it something you can create that is sustainable? And when I think about sustainability in a family office, it means it really has to be able to survive not one generation, but at least two to three generations from where it started. I mean, people talk about a hundred year plan and that is fantastic. I don't exactly know how many generations live in a hundred years since we live so long now, but I do really believe that you can't set one up in good conscience if you don't think it can survive. It's not financially feasible. Yeah. And uh, again, a a really uh, important point there is if, if the liquidity event has come via the fact that you cannot agree a direction for the business, you don't get on as a family, there's conflict, there's disputes, um, taking that and, and wrapping it back up into something that requires some coherency from the family is probably not the best idea um, on, on that side of it. And having the longer term view in mind when doing so is essential as well because these aren't it's not like you can can sort of all sit down together in an afternoon and go okay let's create a family office there's far more to it as you um, know for for that side of it so it takes a lot of effort there's costs there's complications there's all sorts of things to navigate so having that consensus i guess at a relatively early stage the reason i mentioned it may blow up our scenario is that i'm assuming these discussions should be happening long before the the money hits the bank account and everyone's looking around going, what now? Yeah, so absolutely. And here's here's the dirty little secret about families, um, you know, going through a liquidity event. And I can speak from experience because this happened in my family, but there's a incredibly um, highly interested advisor ecosystem around every family, especially those that are party to the transaction. So, you know, could be the bank, could be the investment banker, could be the accountant, could be the attorneys. Um, You know, so what ends up happening is there's lots of information being fed by all these other parties to different family members. And sometimes it actually breeds harmonies. Sometimes it breeds um, a sense of entitlement and greed. And so family members are like, nope, I'm going to hold out. I don't want to sell or no, I don't believe. I think we can get a higher price. So there's all this stuff that leads up to this point of the transaction. And oh, by the way, a lot of those advisors are also conceiving how they will continue to live on in this relationship beyond the transaction. Nobody talks about this. Nobody talks about actually how much information is fed into a family system and a family business environment um, about its future, even though sometimes things are being laid well before years and years and years. And I find that families that do scenario planning and they think about where are we trying to get to, you know, in the next five to 10 years, but keep it under wraps. Um, they, they actually are very quiet about their deliberations so that it's not a shock. It's not an, an event like it would feel like to um, waking up and seeing on the front of the Wall Street Journal that your business had been sold if you're a family stakeholder. 
I have families that I know that has happened to. Um, so at the end of the day, um, you know, it's really, really important that this be thought out, this be um, sort of sussed out and vetted with family members so that as you're moving into that um, stage of development, that the family, you're not trying to get them on board. They're already there and they understand why they're doing it. And they understand that um, by being part of the collective, it can create greater um, buying power. I mean, so why, why do people set up single family offices? I mean, it can create tremendous buying power and negotiating fees. It can give you access. So families might get access to certain product that they wouldn't be able to get access to because they can take a bigger slug. They might go through what's called a special purpose vehicle that they create to allow multiple family members to invest, right? So there are a lot of things that a family office can do um, that can help the family basically advocate, have more influence and sort of be um, respected at almost like an institutional level. And ultimately the families that I know that go down the family office path are really, really concerned about control. Uh So they, they trust, but they verify and they really believe that by having it um, anchored in one entity, maybe multiple sub trusts. um, But this allows them to sort of have purview, oversight, control, reporting, access information, transparency to the parties that need to know in a way that, you know, really no other structure can provide. Yeah. And you've mentioned that the term single family office um, a couple of times, and uh, there's uh, an alternative known as the multifamily office. Again, for those who um, may not have heard this um, historically, can you just outline the difference between the two uh, as the name suggests a single family office is just your family but um there's more to it than, than that so you're right there is more to it and the thing that actually gets confusing a little bit is that a single family office may be comprised of multiple families all as lineal descendants from a mom and a dad right uh-huh. um to your point about multi-family offices those are commercial enterprises. So they are um, enlisting clients and those might be individual families unrelated. And they're basically providing family office services on their platform to many, many different families. And typically what that allows a family who maybe doesn't have 100, 200, a billion um, in terms of wealth, it allows them to have a similar sort of experience but they're not, um, they're not owning it. They're not driving HR. Uh, they're not thinking about compensation and, um, you know, salaries and benefits and all the planning and the strategic nature of any kind of business. So they're, 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 it's easier to hire or to hire or fire um, a multifamily office than it is to set up or unwind your single family office. Got it. And, and something else that you've mentioned that I'm uh, intrigued by as well in, in your experience is you mentioned about moving from somebody who's operating within a, a family business and operating business, becoming a founder of the family office. When we talk about business founders, those that establish businesses, they're doing that often out of a passion, out of a desire to build something that initially may just be focused on their own 
needs rather than serving the needs of multiple generations. It's when that becomes successful that the multiple generations then start to, to come into it. Whereas it seems that the mindset for establishing a family office is more, now I want to establish something that will serve multiple generations rather than being focused on that, you know, kind of high growth and let, let's go and, and take loads of risks because we're entrepreneurial and, and that side. Is that something you see in, in practice? Well, founders are natural leaders, right? Most of them um, have a desire to perpetuate on what they created. And if their business no longer is the driver, um, the family office can oftentimes be a place that they quote retire because they never really retire. Mm -hmm. um, most of these types of individuals, and I, I don't want to call out gender differences because I see it with women as well, but oftentimes they have a real passion to continue to work, but continue to fulfill their legacy aspirations. And when that operating entity may have gone away, they're thinking about, well, what's next and how do I make sure it keeps going? And, and oftentimes they really feel like it rests on their shoulders to continue to drive it forward. That may or may not be true. And, you know, a lot of research on founders tells us that um, some of the times they take on the hero persona, you know, being the champion at all ends to um, support a family mission and vision. Oftentimes they feel um, the need to control that transition. They made this well through this business. Now they need to continue to lead and give the vision and direction. And, you know, one of the sticky challenges is that oftentimes founders, there are some exceptions. There's many techpreneurs in Silicon Valley or um, in other parts of the world who um, are very, very young founders and founders of their family office. But oftentimes, um, the majority of these founders are kind of at the age of retirement. So imagine setting up this really powerful structure that has so much influence now directly on your family, right? The family business had maybe owner stakeholders, passively, passive, possibly active. It also had a bigger community to serve employees, maybe the community at large. But now when we move to this family office sort of structure, the primary clients of a single family or multifamily office are actually family members. So it has a it has a different connotation, but it also has a different level of influence among family members. And that can bring out the best and that can sometimes not bring out the best if, if family members feel like they're trying to be controlled or wait a minute, I, I feel like I should have more access and be on the investment committee. So again, there's this need to on-ramp, on-board and enfranchise the second and third generations as they come up in adulthood mm -hmm. um, and build some bridges between the founder and those, um, those rising gen. Got it. And uh, again, something you mentioned there that I'd like to um, dig into is that the impact on family dynamics of moving from being jointly involved in something that has huge value, probably financially and emotionally, if, if it's something that they're emotionally attached to as a business, but can't readily be spent. It's not liquid in the same form as, as cash, but it may be worth, as you say, $250 million, something like that. And the changing dynamic that can happen um, 
or does it happen, I guess is the question. When that moves from being something that is intangible, is tied up in assets and business, and yes, it provides an income stream and perhaps a role within that business, to that move into cash, does that tend to highlight the tensions? Does it ease tensions? Does it depend on each, I guess it depends on each family as with most things here, but. Well, I think it it kind of goes back to history, right? So what was your historical connection to, or, um, you know, how you worked with or didn't work with. A lot of companies, for example, closely held might issue um, a distribution from, you know, we had a great year. So there's, you know, a distribution going out. Um, But a lot of families with closely held businesses reinvest, right? They reinvest in the business and there may not be um, cash outlays to family members. I think what ends up happening when there isn't clarity about what the purpose of the wealth is, um, defining even at the trust level, what the investment policy statement for each underlying trust or account is that family members may have different um, preconceived notions of what they have access to, what's it for, how it can supplement my lifestyle um, with this, you know, sort of extra income. And and that's also part of the challenge of the family office is giving that definition. Um, A few days ago, I spoke with a dear friend, Ron Gordas, who made his wealth in the financial services um, world. He was uh, the founder of AssetMark, a very large publicly traded firm. And then you know, he said to me so astutely, he said, you know, I worked my whole life to build the best company. And now I realized I need to go work, go to work to help the world and basically translate that wealth into doing well and doing good. So he didn't want to concede returns on his investments, but he was one of the first and earliest um, families to think about impact before the term was coined. Um, think about how do we sort of make a difference with our wealth. And he did it also in a way that was really unique because he said to his wife, hey, I want you to be my partner in this endeavor. And, you know, to this day, they invest highly into women um, ventures, micro lending around the globe, um, the environment, and actually their daughter, Stephanie, Uh, and her husband, Eric, have also now joined them. So now it's truly a family affair. So those who say it can happen, that family offices can't sort of be the second generation of the family business, I say read a little bit more about the Cordes family and the family (laughs) office. We feature them in the second edition of the Complete Family Office Handbook. But there, there are opportunities, I think, where if you give clarity and definition of what you're trying to achieve and you are inspirational, it's an incredible vehicle. Yeah. And uh, I speak a lot on the um, podcast around the role that um, family governance can play in documenting or at least prompting the discussions that are needed in order to, to agree that. Um, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm assuming that there's similar degrees of governance within the family office structures in order to ensure there is clarity and that there's these discussions or that it would be considered sensible to at least have those discussions so that everyone knows the the strategy, I guess, for for what needs to be achieved by the family office. Absolutely, Russell. I mean, at the end of the day, it's no different really than a lot of the business governance that you would see in any, any student 
business, from family business to corporation to foundation. And the family office is no different that it will have different levels of um, governance. I mean, there's investment governance just around the decision-making, you know, how we arrive and get to um, a decision to invest in a certain investment class or if it's alternatives in private equity or with a fund manager. Um, likewise, there are needs to really evaluate, um, you know, the family office and the decisions from, you know, efficiency, effectiveness, um, achieving certain milestones and goals. So it's not uncommon to have boards of advisors or boards of directors and have a lot of subcommittees that might range from distribution committees to um, wealth transfer and tax committees. I mean, there's a whole number of um, ways that the family starts to evolve its governance, family councils, obviously. Um, but a lot of the governance at the beginning, just like a family business, can be relatively simple. And I, I never want to forget that um, the law is our driver for governance at the end of the day. So much of um, governance stems at that base level from the governance just built into the legal documents, your operating agreements, your charters, um, your trust documents. So that, that always becomes a springboard for broader, what I'll call family governance. One of the, uh, again, we've touched on this um, slightly, but, but I wonder if we can dig a bit deeper on it, where the, the family business, the, the operating business acts as the, the glue that kind of holds people together. You mentioned yourself, you, you grew up sort of observing and being around a, a family business. It can be harder to observe and, and be kind of as involved from a family office perspective, particularly if there's multiple generations and there's lots and lots of people involved, there might not necessarily be a role for everybody. But where that glue of the family business is um, not there, how best can families sort of replicate that or ensure that that's not lost through um, this, the new family business structure of a family office? So let's just talk about what kind of stickiness happens in a family office versus the glue you're talking about in a family business. I think there are opportunities for the family office, but it has to be an intention, right? Just like in, in the family business, there has to be an intention of how you enfranchise stakeholders to care about, you know, what they own. Um, a family office similarly has to, to find on-ramps to get family members um, knowledgeable, aware, prepared. And even if they're not in a direct active role, I see a lot of family offices find creative ways to um, create passion and interest where perhaps, you know, others don't take the time. And I'll give you an example. Um, it's featured in, in the book as well, but we talk about, we talked to um, the Root family and they were the developers of the design for the Coca-Cola bottle. Um, I won't give you the whole history, but let's fast forward to today when they were no longer um, sort of driving a lot of work and business with Coca-Cola. Um, their family office has a pretty predominant philanthropic arm, and they realized that maybe the family members weren't as interested in what we're investing in and what we're doing. Um, I mean, Preston Root, I just talked to him the other day, and he said, you know, it's not as exciting. Our real estate business is just not as exciting as when we were large distributors of Coca-Cola. Um, but what he talked about was 
we've found that we have an, a really important role to play in our communities and globally. And so they've created a whole on-ramp with um, the ability for family members, next-gen family members to contribute videos um, and short overviews of charities that they're really passionate about. And then they actually allow that second generation, I guess theirs is really the fourth or fifth generation to, um, a, you know, consents on where they think they should allocate some of these more sizable grants. And this is basically on the job training for these next generation leaders to take over the foundation. I mean, at the end of the day, that is where this is leading. So I'm a big believer that between experiential and then just brick and mortar, um, helping family members have the conversations about what this means, what what it could mean for them, what it means from a business standpoint to sustain this, because there's just a lot of responsibilities and stewards are are made, they're not born. So I, I really believe that inheritors and beneficiaries are born. But if you really want your family to steward a family office, then you have to prepare them with all the technical information um, from estate planning, trust and taxation to investing, to financial planning, to um, administration and just understand the roles and responsibilities. That's where the glue starts to happen, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Got it. And I, I guess we the scenario we're looking at is the uh, establishment of uh, family office, the, the kind of conversations and, and considerations to look at from that perspective. And we mentioned at the, the top of the show about the, the kind of 100-year plan. And uh, uh, again, in terms of the... Um, number of family members that the family office could serve that probably will grow over a number of generations as each generation has more children and marries and has more children etc etc again are these considerations to take into a point at outset is how do we then go about potentially educating and um, creating some stickiness and glue for for people who haven't even been born yet does that form part of that or is it Take, take that as it comes. Well, I think there's intention. And, and again, what is it? What's the driver behind the family office? And if it's to um, engender togetherness for a family, to build family harmony, um, alignment, um, be a powerful advocate for family collective interests, then those are the kinds of things that start to inculcate an education mandate over time. At the outset of a family office, I mean, number one is, do you have the affinity to to even start one? Number two, what is it you're trying to achieve? Are you supplementing one generation, two generations lifestyle? Are you actually trying to amass wealth that is an annuity that will grow, right? For um, hopefully a hundred or more years. And so you have to really design a structure around the intentions and the um, passion of the family. And I think what ends up happening is that education starts to define itself when you know what those critical items are and artifacts are, and then you need to capture them and you got to figure out how to make them part of a learning process. And, and that's where learning becomes um, a long time mandate of many family offices because they know there is so much work that got them to this point Uh that they have to continually bring people back to say, no, no, this is 
all that's been done and this is where we're headed and this is where we need you to pull on the oar. Um, so even if they're a passive you know, stakeholder of a family office and receive benefits, they have to sort of know where they fall in the footprint and what's to come and where they'll need to step up. Uh-huh. And looking at some of the sort of practical elements of uh, establishing the family office, presumably if the skill set doesn't exist within the family, you need to go externally to recruit people in to run functions like investments and HR and like you're saying, security, all sorts of different aspects that, that can be included. That can be quite a daunting task for people because it's, again, they've been stewards of the family operating business, which they've had control over. And part of it's then going to be handed over to people they hope they can trust. What sort of tips or um, processes can be adopted to ensure that those decisions are made adequately? Because it might be the first time that families are coming up against these types of um, sort of challenges and, and recruitment issues. Yeah. So, I mean, my mind is very much colored by um, a, a situation I was recently asked to opine on, but in that, in that case, it was a, a family office who had um, called over um, a senior executive from another operating company. Um, and sadly, you know, what ended up happening is that person ended up defrauding the family. That doesn't happen maybe one in a hundred or even less. Um, but it happens. And I, I, I step back to families who are in this process of onboarding staff to give them an opportunity to understand how valuable it is to work with a third party, um, executive search firm, family office recruitment, but just to have someone who is evaluating and weighing in and helping them really achieve what they're trying to achieve versus, you know, just because it's easy and accessible and I trust this person and they know us. Those are all the um, responses I hear from family owners who say, no, 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 it's fine. You know, this person let's call him Tom. He's fantastic. He's been loyal. He's been great. I've, I've just seen it too many times. And it's, it's a heartbreaking situation because usually these are the most trusted, loyal. They've gone on family vacations with some of these owners. Um, owners have put their kids through school. I mean, there's just this incredibly tight bond. And and I, I call it out because sometimes family members don't have objectivity um, okay. to the fact that these consigliaries are extraordinary people. And one, one um, matriarch said to me one time, she said, you know, I hired a really good person, but this person got into a bad situation. And as a function of that made a really bad um, decision and and her example of being defrauded. And I, I really believe that oftentimes family owners have hired really good people. I just think it's really important to separate. Um, and, and part of that's because you want someone who actually doesn't have any preconceived notions and they understand implicitly how important confidentiality, privacy, and security is in their role and what they know. So I'm a big believer that, you know, perhaps you, you can have one or two of these sort of internal people coming over, but be really mindful, um, especially if you put them in that top post, yeah. uh, that sometimes it's good to have a clean slate. Yeah, and it's uh, it's not the case necessarily of, 
if they held a particular function within the operating business. I mean, the operating business, if it's been sold, may still be there and they may still be in those those roles. So we, we won't sort of discount that. But it may be that they go, well, I get on really well with Tommy. does a great job for me running the financial control element within the operating business. Let's just bring him into that exact same role. But it's, it's apples and pears, really, in terms of the comparison, because one's a, an operating business, one might have the family office might have far more focus on the investment side and philanthropic side and estate planning and tax and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, as you say, just replicating the role with people from the operating business into the family office is perhaps not the, the ideal starting point. Um, and there is help out there for people who um, are looking for those kind of roles to be fulfilled. Absolutely. It's devastating when um, any family goes through being defrauded in some way, shape or form, because it's personal. I mean, when we think about stealing wealth from a family office, you're stealing from your children, your nieces, your nephews, your siblings, your parents. Um, so that's a horrible, horrible um, reality for families who've gone through it. And it's shameful. I mean, it's terribly shameful. Uh, so I really can't put enough emphasis on how important it is to step back and think about the power of holding somebody accountable and a new paradigm shift um, who actually has deep experience and really understands. I mean, the family office executives I work with, they're not super highly visible, flashy people. They're not dropping names or not. Um, they are quiet they're low profile, they're proud, they're hardworking. Um, and so it's just so important to recognize how, how um, the sanctuary of this role and responsibility, because it, it's, it's very personal. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in terms of, uh, you, you've touched a little bit on, on the work that you do, but presumably if families are looking at a potential liquidity event, they can pick up the phone, drop you a note and say, help, what, what, what do we need to be thinking of? How, how, how do we go through this process? Uh, and importantly, there is help to, to allow them to, to do that. They're not, they're not alone in uh, doing that. Firstly, other families have gone through it historically, um, but also as a result, there are people out there who can help. Uh, you mentioned you went through something uh, similar yourself. So um, would that be fair to say that the don't start necessarily on your own if you're not entirely sure of which way to well, go. Well, you can definitely start on your own, but be very careful on how you get to where you're trying to go because there are wonderful advisors out there. There's also wonderful advisors within large institutions, but they may have an alternative motive. Um, so really think about who's giving you the advice, what information you're getting, um, and actually what are you giving because – I mean, we don't sell product. We're not an investment advisor. We're not looking to gather your assets. Um, we're not profiting by anything except for you hiring us for our advice. Now, if if I I have a lot of families who say, oh, no, no, my banker, they, they've totally mapped out everything for me, but start to understand they have a vested interest in you staying close to them. And they see this as, wow, more services we can sell. And maybe you're comfortable with that, but maybe you're not. Um, and oftentimes the families that call us are either still operating their business. So they haven't gotten to that liquidity event and they're even just trying to decide, do we need one? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a big believer that not every family of significant wealth and means 
really wants to create a family office. So just think about that. If you go to the bank or institution who wants you to get liquid, who wants you to, um, you know, potentially use a lot of their services, they have a vested interest to lead you and guide you in a direction that may or may not suit you. We oftentimes are in a role of having to tell owners and families really tough information, which is sort of a litmus test and looking in the mirror to say, you know what, this is a great concept in theory, but let's just talk through these scenarios where we think you might run into roadblocks because uh -huh. we're all about probability for success. We want families to win and be happy and fulfilled. Um, and a family office doesn't fix, like we talked about, some of the brokenness that happens in every family. It's, it's uh, not unusual. Um, so you really have to think about how you unpack it and where you're trying to get to. And then really the partners that are advising you. Um, no, no, no offense, but no family office executive unless or advisor, unless they're actually fulfilling an, an outsourced role or function to your office. But in my case, we typically only work with a family for one, two, maybe three years max in that um, on-ramp. So you also really need to know what would a typical advisor like myself be doing and for what duration of time. I've had a, a really uh, good time exploring this um, topic with you. Um, we spoke off air beforehand of uh, a potential follow-up episode on the uh, more more detail on the differences between single family office and, and multi-family office and I'd, I'd love to uh, follow up with that if if we may um if our audience are looking to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to to do that well we uh have two companies tamarin partners that's our family office consultancy and i'd love to hear from you hear what you're facing what you're trying to achieve and what your aspirations are um if you are Part of a large family enterprise if you're getting liquid or even if you're in a transition we work with a lot of families who are in transition so my email is kirby at tamarinpartners.com and our website tamarinpartners.com you'll also get more information there on all our services and then tamarin learning is our education technology platform for beneficiaries. We're we're really bullish on preparing stewards and helping families engender a sense of responsibility with um, their rising gen and providing the technical uh, foundation for that. So Tamron Learning will give you all the information there. Of course, reach out to me by email. Um, I think my phone number is listed somewhere as well, mm -hmm. but we'd love to hear from you. And Russell, it's delightful to be on your show um, and happy to follow up on the single and family office paradigm and the differences. Fantastic. And uh, we'll put uh, link in the show notes for those websites and your email address. So if people want to um, do that, they can uh, go to the fanbizpodcast.com website, look for the show notes, and they will be on there. Um, I look forward to our next conversation. But Kirby, for now, thank you very much for your time and your input. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.